Historically, Australia has prided itself on being an egalitarian nation. As a young nation, we made it a point to set ourselves apart from England and the US. Our politicians spend a lot of time talking about the idea of the fair go and policies and initiatives about levelling the playing field. Most Australians will probably tell you that they believe one's financial prospects should not be determined by their parents' occupation, background or financial resources. Instead, we would like to think that we live in a society where everyone has equal opportunity, particularly through education and training, to work in high-wage occupations and generate their own wealth. Welcome to another episode of Think Business Futures. I'm Nicole Sutton, a lecturer at the UTS Business School. And I'm David Brown, Associate Dean External Engagement at the UTS Business School. So on this episode of Think Business Futures, we're talking about income mobility. So here to explain what this is and why it matters is Peter Zeminski, who's an Associate Professor in Economics at the UTS Business School. So Peter, what got you interested in researching the financial flows that occur between different generations? Um, I guess I've always been uh, interested in inequality and intergenerational uh, mobility. I was kind of uh, late in my career, really, to uh, actually become interested uh, in economics. So, uh, many years after I did a degree in economics uh, was when I actually became interested in having a career in economics. What I was interested uh, in in between is studying uh, social questions, and in particular about uh, studying the effects that uh, governments have on people's lives and the extent of uh, inequality and the extent of intergenerational mobility. These are the the sorts of questions that actually led me to get back into economics because uh, I found that, uh, eventually I found out that that economics was actually uh, quite a good discipline to equip me with the tools that I needed to uh, study society in these ways. Can we talk about intergenerational income mobility? What is this? So uh, intergenerational mobility uh, broadly speaking, is about the extent to which people's outcomes are determined by the characteristics of their parents or determined by the outcomes of their parents. Uh, so economists are usually interested in income or earnings mobility. In other disciplines, people uh, have looked at uh, educational mobility more closely or, or at social class and that sort of thing. Uh, the reason why I guess people who have been looking more at mobility now rather than later is mainly due for, to data reasons. We're getting better and better data to, to see the extent of mobility. The, but the main reason why people are, are super interested in mobility is, if you like, mobility is the, is the new inequality. People have been talking about uh, and researching inequality for, for many decades. And the, the issue with looking at inequality is that not everybody agrees that, the, that inequality is necessarily bad. I think most of us uh, do believe that inequality in, uh, is, in its essence, a bad thing. Uh, but nevertheless, there are always counter-arguments that say that uh, inequality can be good because it reflects people's efforts and their abilities and, and that a, a high level of inequality is, is arguably a fair thing from some perspective. In contrast, uh, as per your intro, um, intergenerational mobility is uh, much more closely related to the idea of equality of opportunities. And so there's a much stronger consensus, uh, as, again, as you said, that people's outcomes shouldn't be determined by factors outside of their control or more specifically uh, by the families that they are lucky or unlucky enough to be born into. And so uh, people uh, have been studying intergenerational mobility uh, a lot more for these reasons. Yeah. And sorry if I'm just kind of laboring the point, but I just want to make sure we have a really clear picture in our head about what we're talking about. So when we talk about mobility and income mobility, we're talking about our ability to kind of shift in terms of, our, from our financial point of view, our wealth 
like separate or independent from, say, our parents. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, broadly, there are several measures to measure the extent of of mobility. They're all about the association between the income of people and the income of their own parents. There are uh, several ways to look at this. The most commonly used method is to look at something called uh, the elasticity of income or the elasticity uh, of earnings intergenerationally. Elasticity is a measure which usually ranges from zero to one. An elasticity of one means that the advantage and disadvantage of people in one generation is completely transferred to their children, whereas an elasticity of zero means that people's uh, incomes have no relationship with that of, of their parents. So typically, the intergenerational elasticity of income is somewhere between zero and one, with a higher elasticity indicating greater persistence or less mobility, and a lower elasticity indicating more mobility and less persistence. Uh, so there are other measures that are, that are used. Increasingly, people are using measures of rank correlations, looking at the rank of parents within their income distribution in their generation and looking at how that relates to the rank of the children of where they sit in their generation. And you mentioned before that people are able to study this now because of because of the availability of certain data. Is that right? Yeah. So ideally what you'd what you'd like to study this perfectly is to have the lifetime income uh, of two generations of people you know, in a given country, a given society, linked at the individual level between children uh, and their parents. Now, very few countries have got that. We don't have that. And so uh, what people have to do is to make, make the best of what they can with, with the limited data that are available. In Australia, uh, we don't even have a large data set, a, a administrative data set currently available for the lifetime income of one generation, uh, let alone of two generations. But what we do have, however, in Australia is a survey called the HILDA survey, uh, which has been running now for uh, 18 years. It's in its 18th year, where representative sample of households have been followed over time and re-interviewed uh, every year. And any children in the, in the original households are then followed as they uh, make their own oh. households and um, yeah, progress I, I, through life. So I've heard of HILDA. Um, big fan of Hilda. What does the acronym stand for again? Household Income Labor Dynamics Australia. Okay, uh, but I wasn't aware. So it's the same sample of people that have been followed for 18 years. Is that right? That's right. Well, uh, more or less. It, it starts off with a representative sample of households representative of the population in 2001. Uh, and then everybody who was in those originally sampled household households is then followed throughout their wow. life as long as they continue to uh, consent to be involved regardless of whether they stay in the existing household or, or if they uh, form their own households. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so if there's yeah. any Hilda households out there, hello. <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> uh, looking at the data that you're able to get from the Hilda survey, you have been able to measure, you're actually able to measure some income mobility or this intergenerational elasticity uh, in Australia. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so we've done a couple of different studies using the Hilda data, uh, using a couple of different approaches to try and uh, get around the shortcomings that are still there in the data, despite how great Hilda is. I guess the punchline out of our studies is that Australia is 
uh, not particularly mobile in, in an international perspective, and we're not particularly immobile either. We're not this sort of egalitarian country that we'd like to think that we are. Uh, we don't have this outstanding equality of opportunity, but we're not that bad either. Uh, we're certainly more mobile than the US, and we're certainly less mobile than the Scandinavian countries. But this, uh, I guess, emerging understanding that we have about this question of mobility is really only quite new. Uh, and we're only really just starting to, to study it. Soon uh, there'll be more studies that will come out which are using newly available tax data, uh, which is far more comprehensive, has, has much greater coverage of the population, and that uh, picture will continue to develop. But nevertheless, it, the, our, our first estimates, our first couple of studies, are really kind of just scratching the surface. <laughs> So to what extent do family dynamics play in this? Um, they, they do play a role. Um, so we, we do know that when we look at measures of household income, uh, the extent of persistence is greater than if we look at individual income or earnings. Uh, and the reason for that is that people who come from higher income families are more likely to live in, in couple families, especially uh, in, their, in the period of which we measure them in the, in the Hilda data. The other thing that happens is that people from high-income families tend to partner up with people who are more likely to work, and people from low-income families tend to have their children earlier. Uh, so for all of these reasons, we see that there's a greater persistence of household income between generations, uh, and therefore less mobility when you look at household income, uh, than when you look at individual measures. Can I pull you back just to, you said before that Australia is kind of moderate. It's more mobile than the US and less though, less so than, say, Scandinavia. Can you give us a sense in terms of the numbers, like some broad kind of rough estimates about what does the income mobility stats actually look like? Yep. Uh, so the greatest challenge for the, these sorts of comparisons is having comparable estimates. Yeah. There are many different ways you can do it. But on the, the most comparable estimates that we have, the Australia's elasticity is 0.35, mm -hmm. uh, which means that if you take two people and their incomes are 10% different, then their incomes of their children are expected to be 3.5% different. Um, now, whereas for the US, that's more like 0.45 or 0.5. The UK is not, not far behind that, whereas for the Scandinavians, it's more like, say, 0.2, 0.25. So there is a wide discrepancy in these elasticity estimates. I guess besides being central to this concept of fairness, to what extent is in income mobility important? Like, why does it actually matter? I think the reason why it matters is, is it's one of the best indicators we have of the extent of equality of opportunity uh, in a country. If people's outcomes are completely determined by their parent, where they've come from, then we have a society where most people would agree that it's it's not a fair country to live in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that besides that, the I guess. Yeah, these broader principles. Are there? Is there any research about the economics of income mobility? Is there an economic argument for having for people being able to kind of shift their their, their financial prospects? Yeah, well, if you have a low level of mobility, that uh, implies that people who have come from low SES backgrounds end up having low incomes, and that means that their human capital is underutilized. It usually means that the level of investment that's been made in their human capital development uh, has been inadequate for them to reach their potential and thereby contribute to uh, the economy to their potential. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2ser.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Think Business Futures. Don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. 
This show is a co-production of the UTS Business School with support from 2SER. On this episode, we're talking about that famous idea of the fair go in Australia. We've always prided ourselves in having a classless society and where your own fortune is not determined by how rich your parents are. But income inequality is on the rise across Australia. And on this episode, we're speaking with Peter Siminski, Associate Professor of Economics at the UTS Business School. I want to talk to someone for whom education made all the difference when it came to job prospects and achievements. Former New South Wales Premier and Foreign Affairs Minister Bob Carr knows a little something about the quality of opportunities from a personal and professional perspective. We're interested in intergenerational income mobility, how people's background and their parents' backgrounds influences their opportunities and financial prospects. Um, you grew up in South Sydney. You were the first person in your family to graduate from high school. Can you tell us a little bit about the influences that shaped your trajectory from these relatively humble beginnings to New South Wales Premier and the Foreign Minister for Australia? Well, that's a really tough question. I grew up, as I, as I say in my book, uh, Run for Your Life. I recall growing up in South Matraville on a new release area, fibro house, outside toilet, no sewerage. They collected the pan twice a week. As a working-class household, my father was a train driver, so there wasn't much disposable income. In that Australia, working-class Australia, with a limited services sector, an industrial economy, very largely in urban Australia, things were very different. The way ahead was to capture that kid's interest in the world of reading and books and schooling. And I was lucky that that world caught my attention, and I became imbued with the notion of of uh, doing well at school and getting a cadetship in journalism. Somehow that, that ambition took root. It's, it's interesting you touch here on the, on the role of education. Can you expand a little bit on this? How does education play into this issue around equality of opportunity and income mobility? I went to Matraville High School, which sat on the other side of Anzac Parade at Malabar from the state's biggest jail. And on the other side of the neighbourhood, there was the uh, smelly old industrial area with tanneries and chemical works and the Bunurong power station. But there were a few sparks. There's a lousy curriculum. I had to do woodwork and technical drawing for three years and a year of metalwork. But there was an English teacher who came in at the start of our fourth year at school with a box of her own books. She said, you're now growing up, you should read books like these. And there's Evelyn War and Jane Austen, George Orwell. And That was the sort of spark I wanted. And the other thing that opened me to the world was the the ABC radio on at home and the Sydney Morning Herald, which we subscribed to. These things, these influences invited me to conceive a preposterous ambition as a 15-year-old that I would make a future for myself as a career politician. What was the next steps, though? The next step was to get the sort of education, I thought, that was needed for me to speak like my childhood hero, Gough Whitlam. He was my hero, and I thought one needed to be educated as he was, to speak clearly and distinctly, and to know about the big, complex things that politicians spoke about. And to do that, I'd need to go to university. But at university, I'd need to make contact with the Labor Party machine. It was one thing to be in a local Labor Party branch. But my ambition was such that I wanted to get into Parliament as soon as I could. 
we talked a little bit about your education experience uh, and I'm going to shift gears a little bit here to a bit time later in the sense that as Premier you were called the Education Premier and it's kind of interesting the time that you presided over the education system and in the capacity of the Premier I was actually at primary school, high school and university. So I am in, in fact a kind of the product of the system that you presided over. So I'm interested in understanding what sort of initiatives did your government do that shaped my prospects? So if you were at high school studying the curriculum that I was able to shape as Premier, you were gifted with the best curriculum in Australia. That's by common acknowledgement. It had a range of vocational subjects, but when it came to academic subjects, it was the most rigorous and substantial. Every other state in Australia abolished history, for example, and absorbed it into a general study called human society, human society and its environs. We kept it history, a distinct discipline. We also, did you do extension subjects? I did, I did. Well, extension English and extension history were introduced in my time. Mm-hmm. And I was very proud when I heard that this really was university level. And when I saw the figures that showed youngsters enrolling in extension English because they wanted to do it at the most demanding level, I thought of my time back at Matraville High School where I didn't have the, have the opportunity of studying at honours level. Mm. I didn't have the opportunity. It wasn't the policy of the school. Back to your primary school years, it wouldn't have been the case with you, but there would have been youngsters falling through the cracks because they couldn't keep up with the rest of the class in reading. My initiative, and I'm proud of it to this day, was to introduce reading recovery teachers, to go in and coach youngsters having difficulty when it came to that that most fundamental of all skills, being able to read. Yeah, okay. So coming back to this idea around the curriculum, why was that so important? I thought what was studied, what's on the curriculum, was fundamental to good education. I had the experience in a mediocre high school, despite good teachers and a committed principal who I admired, I had the experience of being bored too often. Bored because the subjects were subjects I had no aptitude for and was never going to be any good at. And because the subjects I, I was good at, I wasn't able to study at the most demanding level. Why has learning got to be rendered boring? Back when I was at school, there was no exciting way of teaching science. And if you think the opportunity today of beginning with climate change and peeling back and looking at the science that feeds into this living reality of climate change, there you can dramatise a subject that was all dull formulae, boring as batshit when I was at school. Shifting up a gear even further... So education is a driver or can contribute to creating these equal opportunities for everyone, regardless of their background. But why does having equal opportunities for, within a society, why does this matter? Well, if you haven't got equal opportunity, if you're disadvantaged because of where in a city you live and what the income level of your parents is, then we're asking society, we're asking society to live with a servant class, as in so much of the United States. Let's go back to Peter's research and see what it says about the link between tertiary education and income. 
So education is often viewed as the great leveller, one of the key mechanisms for enabling social and economic mobility and as providing opportunity for people regardless of their background. You've recently uh, investigated the role of education in Australia, again using the HILDA data. What did you find? Well, education is uh, obviously one of the biggest factors in this whole field of research, uh, whether we're looking at uh, inequality or whether we're looking at intergenerational mobility. One thing that's, I think, important to think about is that education is in some ways a part of the problem uh, as opposed to necessarily just part of the solution. Um, and in, in, by that what I mean is uh, that people who come from uh, high SES backgrounds tend to have higher levels of education and therefore they have higher levels of income as, as a result of that. So in our work we found uh, when we looked at a very broad measure of family background that education uh, explains approximately 30% of the intergenerational transmission of advantage between generations. So that's a kind of a, a for most people, quite a, quite a different way to think about the role of education in all of this. But it is, isn't just a solution. Uh, it is also a transmission mechanism. It is therefore kind of part of the problem or, or part of the, the one of the mechanisms of intergenerational transmission. Yeah, so it actually enables kind of elite, and I kind of use this term, yeah, elite people to stay elite by enabling them to be able to access That's right. higher, quality, higher quality education? Is that the yeah, idea? Yeah, well, in particular tertiary education. I think that that's the biggest, most easily measurable measure of education that's relevant. Uh, and when people have looked at cross-national comparisons, as well as uh, changes over time in the U.S., the level of mobility is strongly related to the returns to tertiary education. Uh, so when the labour market returns to tertiary education are high, that's strongly associated with there being greater persistence of advantage. Again, because uh, people from high SES backgrounds tend to get more education, and when that higher education matters more, then that uh, increases the level of persistence in, in the economic outcomes. So from a a number of different perspectives. Higher education uh, can be seen as one of the, the main mechanisms uh, which we want to challenge, I guess, as a society of, of, of this persistence of advantage and disadvantage. Hi, Peter. Jason, the producer here. I have to jump in really quickly because I went to university in the U.S. and I can't help but wonder how the differences between the way we pay for tertiary education in Australia versus the U.S., plays into income mobility? So we have the uh, HEX or the HELP uh, system now, which uh, is internationally regarded as a great model of paying for, for tertiary education, uh, with people paying for it through the taxation system when their, their income is high enough for them to be able to afford it. So you would expect that access to higher education will be a lot better in Australia as compared to the US. But as it turns out, the numbers don't, don't support this. The association between parental higher education attainment and child higher education attainment is actually quite similar uh, between the two countries. I, I think, without having looked into this in great detail, that this is probably due to the, the far greater range of scholarships and programs available in the US to uh, low SES students, uh, much more so than we have in Australia, partly because people see that access is not as much of an issue here as they see it in the US. So on balance, the intergenerational mobility of education, in terms of tertiary education, actually is quite similar. So that, that's kind of a surprising finding, I think, in some ways. So it's not so much the access, it's the returns to education. The returns to education, to tertiary education, are much higher in the US than they are in Australia. And, and that, in turn, is related to the 
uh, the amount of inequality that there exists in the two countries. So it's surprising, isn't it? It is surprising, yeah. right, that the education mm. mobility that would actually be on par mm. with, with the United States. Like, Can we put this into some sort of historical lens? I mean, not always in Australia did people have to pay for their education. It wasn't that long ago that people got free university education. Have you seen this play out mm. in, in your research? On the studies that I've seen, the extent of educational mobility in Australia has remained relatively constant mm. over the last few decades. Mm-hmm. It hasn't mm-hmm. changed too much. Uh, I, don't, I haven't actually seen the data for that in, in yeah. the US. So I can't comment on the US. I mean, yeah. but on the other side, I'm just sitting here kind of reflecting this might be a bit self-indulgent, but I'm sitting here reflecting like, on myself and both my parents went to university. In fact, one of my parents worked at a university. In fact, both of them kind of work at universities and here I am at a university. And what you're saying is, yeah, but of course, in Australia, our educational opportunities and outcomes are still going to be driven a fair amount by what our parents have experienced. Right, and that's a reflection of the fact that the cost of going to to university is mostly about the time that you put in to study and the foregone earnings that you you actually have to, to cop, for lack of a better word, in order to go to, to university. So, so the fact that there is very little upfront costs, it simply isn't preventing the, the access issues that, that we see for low SES students. Mm. At least no more so than it is in the US. Yeah, okay. Wow, I'm a little bit uncomfortable now. Hmm. <laughs> What implications does this have then for policymakers? Well, I think that talking about the extent to which education is a transmission mechanism is actually a bit of a different question to how much impact governments can have through educational policies. I mean, I think educational policies are the clearest and most obvious uh, mechanism or policy lever that governments have to improve mobility. So as I was saying earlier, the returns to higher education are a really big factor in this mobility. And so there's a number of different things that have been proposed for what governments uh, can do about this. One of the the things that has been proposed is to just focus more investment into primary and and secondary school because primary and secondary school are the places where everybody goes. There's basically no relationship between uh, your your family background and whether you go to school. Uh, And so therefore greater government investment in in, in those parts of the schooling system uh, could partially alleviate the problem of access to higher education. But I think that the most obvious thing to to do is to focus on, on access to higher education to facilitate that that pathway from high school through to uh, university and also to, I guess, inform high school students, especially from low, low SES backgrounds, about which fields are the most lucrative for them to go to so that they are at least making informed decisions as to which kind of pathways to take. Uh, and obviously the, the third thing is to channel a greater amount of government funding into the schools where we have the greatest level of disadvantage. So how does this speak back to the research done by, I think it was Heckman, who I have a recollection might have won a Nobel Prize for this work, looking at returns on education. And I saw him speak about this once and I was quite taken by the fact that he had pretty strong argument and data to suggest that if we invest in education much earlier in people's development, so preschool, early primary school, this had a much greater effect on the outworking of their life than when we spend money on universities and later on. Because that seems to speak to the same issue that you raised. Yeah, absolutely. So Heckman's work uh, certainly does show that uh, returns to investment in, in early childhood are very high uh, and higher than at different parts of the education system. Uh, I think that's something that governments probably should 
focused more on in Australia than they have so far. I mean, the rhetoric has, has been around for some time and yet investment uh, in those critical early years is still relatively low. Well, the implication of Heckman's work then would be that if you want to alter intergenerational income mobility over time, then the investment needs to be made in that early stage. I mean, that will be the biggest driver of that as opposed to the other factors. If I recall the details of his work. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly very clear evidence that if you invest uh, in disadvantaged children in the preschool years, and it has long-lasting impacts throughout their lives over decades, uh, and you can see the effects in their earnings. So it is kind of in some ways a, a clear finding for policy that improving the lives of disadvantaged kids through education should start at, at those early ages. Speaking of interventions and researching interventions, one of the things I'm interested in understanding is what, is, what does it mean to kind of to, to research this and to gather evidence about the, the effectiveness of different uh, interventions? And what are some of the challenges in evaluating the effectiveness of different policy interventions? I guess one of the criticisms or, or one of the arguments against the, the, the Gonski-based funding model from the coalition government was that there isn't much evidence that uh, pouring money in, if you like, into uh, disadvantaged schools actually translates to better outcomes for those schools. And I, ha- I have some sympathy f- for that view uh, because we, we really do want to invest our money in, in the right ways on the right programs. And so a credible impact evaluation uh, program of research is really quite critical for implementing any policies in, 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 in any, any realm. Now, the, the problem with uh, evaluating the effectiveness of a study is that you need to know what the counterfactual is. Mm. Uh, if you implement a specific program, you need to have a good sense of what would have happened if you didn't implement that program. And that sounds kind of easy and obvious, but in practice, it, it, it's not that easy. Is, uh, is this a little bit like uh, in medicine, they have randomised control trials, you know, where someone gets a drug and someone gets a placebo. And so therefore you can you can see the difference of the effect of having the drug versus not having it. Is, is, that, is that similar to what you're talking about? Absolutely. So the, the gold standard uh, in medical research for causal evaluation is exactly that. It's, it's a randomised controlled trial or it's a, it's a, a systematic review of, of, of randomised controlled trials. The same principle really operates within education or within any other realm of policy. If you really know whether something works, the best way to find out is to run a proper randomised controlled trial. Now, those are extremely rare in Australia, again, in any policy realm, as is the awareness that quasi-experimental techniques are a reasonable substitute for randomised controlled trials. If you can find circumstances which, uh, through policy or through other other reasons, imitate or they come close to mimicking the conditions of a randomised trial, then you can also get some credible estimates of of the impact of a Mm. policy. But we really don't do that very much at all. And the quality of the evaluation work that is done in general in education in Australia, I think, is is, is actually quite low. Is is it because of the ethics of doing a randomised control trial? There's an ethical element in terms of if there is indeed a lifetime benefit uh, associated with a certain kind of educational in- intervention, I imagine it's pretty contentious to give one child that intervention and then give the other the placebo, uh, knowing that it's likely going to have an impact on the rest of their lives. Is that is that one of the issues at play here? That's certainly one of the arguments that's made. Uh, whether it's a, it's a good argument is a different question. Usually what was typically done in, in this sort of work is that one group gets one form of treatment and another group gets something else. Okay. Uh, and and the trial is funded through additional money, 
Uh, and the choice is whether you have a trial which has two separate intervention arms, one of them which may work, one of them which may, may work more. So often a, a community will have a choice between not having any new programs or having uh, two programs, one of them which may be more valuable than the other to a, a child's learning. Um, but uh, the evidence on, on how large the impacts are doesn't exist by construction, otherwise the, the trial wouldn't have been happening. So the ethics of it, I think, are navigatable. They're able to be navigated. But, yeah, we don't seem to have been able to get over these hurdles, which people have in other countries. More research. More research. More research. That brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. You can find out more episodes of the show on your favourite podcast app or on the website, 2ser.com slash thinkbusinessfutures. It's all one word, by the way. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with the support of 2SER 107.3. Big thank you to Peter Siminski for coming on the show to talk about income mobility. Thank you so much for being here, Peter. Thanks for having me. You can find Peter's research on the UTS website. And finally, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at thinkbusiness at 2ser.com. Music.